Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. In an uncertain world, there is always music that can be listened to in good company. Welcome to Friday 15, the show where we speak to friends and interesting people to the backdrop of great tunes and allocate 15 minutes to both. Today we speak to Dr. Matthew Simmons of UCL, a historian specialising in early modern Europe, about the importance of 1648 and the rise of the nation-state. bass was the fusion of Jamaican sensibilities with the black urban Britain. This track was the genre's standard bearer, it's Inner City Life by Goldie.
historians and students of history get excited about certain dates, 44 BCE, 1848 or 1789 for example. One date that's definitely up there is 1648. Uh, Matt? Yeah? Um, why is that year historically so important? Traditionally, it's seen as historically so important because it's the end of uh, the Thirty Years' War. Uh, 1648, there's a series of peace treaties uh, that go on across the year, uh, ending in uh, the ratification of the Treaty of Munster in May of that year, May of 1648. And that ends the Thirty Years' War, which is the most destructive land war uh, that the European continent has possibly ever seen, especially in the German-speaking lands. It's Mm -hmm. just, finally, it is over. Um, but us being Brits and, you know, we've just decided to Brexit, so we're not bothered about Europe. Why is that even important to us? Why is that important in terms of the modern construction of the world? Well, it's interesting because actually England had been kept out fairly forcibly of the Thirty Years' War by the English governments of the day, particularly the governments of James I and Charles I. And this was deeply unpopular. We say that England was apart and separate. But really, a large part of the political nation desperately wanted to be involved with this horrible, despicable war and really despised James VI and I and his son Charles I for it. It's one of the reasons Charles I is so unpopular in the run-up to the English Civil War. We're seen as turning our back on our Calvinist allies in Europe. So while we say we kept out of it and we are separate to it, um, it's important in in defining the Europe that England is inextricably a part of. So tell us about what political ways that states are then viewed afterwards. You know, what actually does this truly found in terms of our understanding of Europe and why is it the start, seen as the start of early modern Europe? I'm not sure if it's the start of early modern Europe. Possibly it's the start of the end game, if you like, of early modern Europe. Okay. Um, <laughs> my wrist has been slapped. The historians urge to be uh, to be pedantic about mm-hmm. periods. Um, traditionally, in diplomatic history, in international history, in political history, it's seen as the moment a new state system takes over in Europe, one that's linked to newly sovereign states that every territory is a law unto itself, and that they interact with one another and I'm not quite sure how true that is that's very much the traditional view that you start having these independent sovereign states, out of them grow the nation states of uh, the late 18th and 19th centuries um, and that that somehow leads us to the Europe, to the diplomatic world uh, that we live in today I'm not overly convinced by that myself. To get that to work, we have to do an awful lot of squinting and forgetting about edge cases (laughs) and often forgetting about, you know, the entire Ottoman Empire. But there you go. That's the traditional reason we, we love 1648. If we look at this, let's take the put the Ottomans to one side and the uh, nascent kind of Russian Empire. Uh, we're looking at Western Europe and kind of Central Europe, yeah. and we are saying that through this peace treaty, we start to see nation states if we'd understand them today. But really, what happens at that peace treaty is that sovereigns say. 
I'm not just going to barge into your country uh, on the pretext of uh, defending Catholics or Lutherans or Calvins. And this, um, in effect, then, does that then lessen the influence, the power of the Pope? Um, You know, in effect, um, to use a modern parlance, you know, trying to uh, raise religious uh, fatwas and say, you know, let's let's roll into central Germany and and let's you know topple this prince of this somewhere, etc., etc. Is that fundamentally it that states can now stand on their own by themselves? Sort of. I mean, obviously, to uh, you know, states are never truly independent of uh, of each other. There's always going to be clashes and frictions and diplomatic wranglings, if mm-hmm. you like, alliances and standoffs. But what Peace of Westphalia really does is, especially again in the German lands, in in the Holy Roman Empire, confirm and enhance a religious settlement uh, that had really uh, been going since the 16th century. So the middle of the 16th century, in 1555, there had been within Germany something called the Peace of Augsburg, which said that essentially the prince within the holy roman empire or the city follow or the city fathers in the case of the free cities or the the archbishops in the case of the archbishop princes they got to choose the religion of their state and they could either have catholicism or they could have lutheranism and what happens in 1648 is well they add calvinism to that list of official choices calvinism <clears throat> was always difficult to fit in with um, international politics of this sort because it is an internationalist movement. It's it's essentially got that same internationalist urge that socialism has in many ways. It doesn't see nations and boundaries quite so distinctly as Catholicism are, you know, as it develops in the 16th century or Lutheranism really does. It's all about, you know, the international church, the church invisible. And so 1648 you get Calvinism added to that list. Okay. But you also, you also get a certain toleration for people who aren't of that, as long as they keep it to themselves and they don't go about disturbing the peace of that country. Also, and this is where we really get to the crux of this matter, following from that sovereignty over religion, and it is following from that sovereignty over religion comes a sovereignty over other aspects of land, of peoples, and of diplomatic agents abroad. Okay, that's a perfect place for us to pause. Doctor, now we always ask a guest to nominate a piece of music, and um, you've been the first person to nominate a piece of classical music. Oh, you're a man of uh, refinement, sir. Tell (laughs) Tell us why you've chosen this piece of music. This is one of my favourite short pieces from uh, one of my favourite composers. Uh, this is Benjamin Britten. Anyone growing up in East Anglia, especially in Suffolk, just has to listen to. We all get dragged out to Aldborough. Uh, we all get told how wonderful Britten uh, was. And it's true, Britten was, an awful, uh, was a wonderful composer. This piece I've chosen uh, is from a sequence uh, of songs. Uh, he originally wrote for soprano, but is often sung, as in this instance, by tenor, uh, called Les Illuminations. It's based on uh, the poetry, uh, poet, a poem sequence by uh, Arthur Rambeau, and it's just always been a very dear favourite. The 
Matt, I, I'm yeah. going to freely admit I'm not necessarily the biggest expert on Britain. Um, if if someone's going to going to start, you know, um, where should I start with with, with his output? Uh, what would be, let's say, the top three Britain pieces of music so I can dip my toe into into Britain waters? Oh, that's a really good question. Well, um... thanks. I've been struggling for one. <laughs> well, Britain did write a um, famously. He's, he's the young person's guide to the orchestra is a piece that's specifically designed to introduce an orchestra and what mm-hmm. it is it does and how it creates music and how it creates music within a certain European tradition. So, yeah, the young person's guide to the orchestra. Um, my favourite of his operas uh is uh the turn of the screw um it's it's a it's a really tiny piece for a small number uh a, a singers I, I i like it very much but also maybe leads us into our conversation back to our conversation today he's most famous really for the war requiem mm-hmm. um of i think 1962 i i i i, I think so and um, which was performed for the consecration of the new Coventry Cathedral. You know the famous, yes, bombed-out cathedral, where the, which was left as it was as a permanent memorial to all victims of warfare everywhere. And, and the new uh, cathedral was uh, built alongside it, a, a glorious, wonderful, modernist building. And the War Requiem was commissioned um, to mark the opening, if you like, of that new cathedral. Uh, and it's also a piece about remembering, about memorialising war. Also, possibly not just thinking about the myths and the stories that we're told about it, but 
trying to think about it in a in wider context of what it is to be human and why we always get we seem to always get caught up in warfare we're often told that we should learn the lessons of history and often when it comes to war i can't help but think humanity seems to be a very slow learner uh, <laughs> on this point at least you mentioned wider context without the treaty of westphalia in 1648 we would have still had nation states 100 150 200 years afterwards wouldn't we because you know full disclosure for the listeners um we had a a, a nice intellectual joust shall we say um whilst uh, sipping on a beer um a cu- couple of weeks ago and and i said well england was a nation state back then and uh, and i'd also argue that the new dutch republic uh, which had got rid of the, the spanish throne uh the spanish crown sorry um, that was definitely um, a nation state. So um, on the peripheries of Western Europe, nation states were, were definitely developing, uh, regardless of um, the Treaty of Westphalia. And and um, though France was definitely not a nation state, the, the, the crown was definitely centralising power slowly but surely, of which the French Revolution kind of accelerated that process. So do you think that historians, and you've got to agree with me here now, because I've set it up uh, to be that way, do you think that historians stories kind of fetishize a little bit too much about 1648. Ooh, I think historians are always in for all to their own obsessions. Mm-hmm. Uh, we always have the key points that we're really fascinated by and therefore we think we tend to think are the key moments because they're the moments that really spark our curiosity, our intellectual interest in historicizing the past. Um, thinking historically, if you like, about the past. Um... I'm, I'm still not convinced that the nation-state develops quite so easily from the Peace of Westphalia, or that you have sort of nation-states, if you like, sitting underneath the new Europe that 1648 mm-hmm. created, waiting to come out, that there's some sort of chrysalis uh, <laughs> moment there. You're, you're right that there are nation-states in Europe at the time. Obviously there are, and I think... England, France, um, yes, the the Dutch Republic. Although you know, you. But, but this is interesting because I wouldn't have said that France was because it had a patchwork of laws, boundaries between different provinces, a patchwork of different languages, etc. But the Dutch Republic and and England, you know, and I'm very clearly saying England as opposed to the United Kingdom because yeah. there wasn't one then. It was definitely a nation state as we'd kind of understand it and looking back at and listen look you're you're, you're prof doc yeah yeah you know you're, yeah. you're the big brain on this and i'm just you know i'm just the the opposite student but looking at the treaty of westphalia it's much more about international relations for me as opposed to really setting in in fact principles of of the nation states it basically says oh. you can't walk into my country i can't walk into yours Etc. Um, Etc. Et Go. Yes, you're right. Although, of course, people still do after 1648. Louis the Fourteenth fights a war of aggression against several parts of the uh, of the Holy Roman Empire and, and takes off a huge swathe of uh, the Western yeah, Alsace-Lorraine. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So, I mean, you you still have wars of aggression uh, that aren't about it. You're possibly not supposed to maybe you're supposed to respect internal sovereignties but you know 
politics being what it is, it's not necessarily respected quite so much. Mm. And it definitely starts an idea of a kind of a balance of power, doesn't it? That which you definitely see in the 17th, 18th centuries kind of going on, 19th centuries going on, is that there's an idea that the large powers in Europe um, are definitely some kind of a concert and they don't want any one nation to be more powerful than another, than to upset the balance. Well, certainly that becomes um, important to certain rulers, especially rulers uh, in England and Great Britain uh, and the United Kingdom as, as we go through that movement, if you like. Ideas of balance of power have been around for a bit longer. English policymakers were always wary of someone on the continent um, becoming what's called the universal monarch. Mm-hmm. Someone like the Emperor Charles V, the Habsburg, who create, who controlled you know, the Spanish lands, the Burgundian inheritance, and the Holy Roman Empire, and his aspiration to a universal monarchy that not only covered the European continent, but crossed the seas uh, to the New World, uh, was always anathema. Mm-hmm. But you're right, so it's one of those things where you start seeing this traditional, if you like, British foreign policy of choosing which side you're on as a sort of balance and this idea that you can balance out powers amongst one another. And that creates some very odd allegiances sometimes. Maybe if you look 40 years later at an, at a, if you like, aftershock of mm-hmm. the Treaty of Westphalia, the Peace of Westphalia, and the Glorious Revolution in England. That is, we understand it in England very much as a part of the growth of political liberty in this country. That's what it's about. And it's English, it's British, it's it's nothing to do with the continent. Apart from, of course, it's an invasion of England by a foreign power uh, on the flimsiest of pretexts by a navy that was raised well before the so-called invitation to William was ever issued. In order to recreate this balance of power because England had been siding with France and that had been starting to worry many, many of the smaller nations in the central European lands. Dr. Math Simmons, um, that has been uh, really illuminating, but I think we've agreed that you fetishised that date too much. I was <laughs> right. All this stuff was going to happen anyway. Um, but Matt, if somebody wants to read some of your work, uh, where can they do that? And where can they find you on social media? Ah, oh, well, I'm on Twitter at Matt Simons, um, but that's more of a personal account. If you follow at Lives and Letters, mm-hmm. all one word, then you'll get to follow the social media of the Centre for Editing Lives and Letters, my research centre at UCL. Uh, we also have a website, uh, www.livesandletters.ac.uk, and there you'll find... Uh, my research, the research of the centre. We we specialise in digital humanities, so the research is actually on the website. Thank you, Doc, and um, hopefully we'll talk again soon. Have a great 2017. You too, Royfield. Happy New Year. Nicholas James Murphy, better known by his former stage name, Chet Faker, is an Australian singer and songwriter. He was one of the breakthrough artists of 2012. Gold is his third single from his debut studio album.
joy a uk dance classic you might even call it tainted garage
for the beat one two. And this one no. Out to all the dedicated raver. Feel the baseline pressure. I hope you enjoyed this week's Friday 15. Remember, please go on to iTunes and write us a little review because uh, we need to get up those iTunes charts. Uh, you can contact me by sending me an email where I'm quite simply royfield at gmail.com. Follow our page on Facebook. You can go there and just type in Friday 15 and you can see the progress of the show. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy, Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.